the adventures of Harold the greatest rat detective as he stops crime and eats some cheese, solves mysteries and eats some cheese, finds. Oh, he just eats a lot of cheese. The Cousin Harold webcomic is updated five days a week for your enjoyment at www.cousinherald.com. Uh, this is Ink Studs, the first uh, interview on the road from our fantastic road trip. Thank you everyone for supporting. I got Brandon here. Hello. And we're sitting in the uh, lush studios of Mike Ellery. Um It's a pretty small space. Thanks. Years in the making. Yeah. The uh, yeah, and the, the center of, of the prisoner, the village from the prisoner, essentially. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is where number two hangs out when he's not working. Apparently, number two is a huge Kirby fan. <laughs> <laughs> Something to do with the crackle. Um, now. It's, I kind of like that we're starting with you, with you, Mike, because last time we talked was when we did the, um, the, the, the failed video interview, well, not failed, but we had the footage, we didn't do the footage, but we have amazing audio of me, well, mainly you and Brandon and Craig Thompson talking. Can you do a panel since then? Oh yeah, we did the panel at Emerald City, right. the influence ones. Like, almost right after that. Yeah, but this feels like, the conversations kind of feel connected, like... That last time. Um, same couch. Same couch. Yeah. Exact same couch. But also like how um, that connectedness because that was kind of a road trip thing where we did a bunch of interviews. Um, so it's kind of neat to like come back and we're doing our bigger road trip project and your first interview. Um, so it's kind of full circle in a way. Um, last time it was we talked a lot about um, influences and kind of process and what excites you. And one of the things I was thinking about um, that we didn't get into last time um, was kind of more the background of Mike. And I think right now it's kind of good because you just did the um, Fantastic Four comic with your brother, Lee. Yeah. Um, and I'm wondering, um, as kids, were you both like kind of voracious with comics together? Is that like kind of a kid? Yeah, it was gigantic. In fact, um, because of that, I've been telling this story quite a bit lately. I don't know if I told you, so I'm sorry if I did, but um, I, my, one of my earliest memories was in my room um, 
Lee somehow, I don't know if he talked me into getting up on this rickety card table, but he did, and then he's like, dance, and started shaking it faster, faster. I remember that. And then the next thing I remember was waking up in the hospital, <laughs> and uh, the, the hospital bed was blanketed with comic books that uh, they had gotten from the gift shop downstairs. And this is back in the day when a hospital gift shop would have comic books. Oh, yeah. I was going to ask which one of you is older, but that story really just implies that he was. <laughs> oh, yeah. He's, he's, he's two years older than me, and I, and I cannot overstate how grateful I am for the taste that he had. Because when I think of the comics that he had, and we, we would, on family trips or anytime that we would be out, you know, we'd be given some money to buy comics or, you know, we'd be kept entertained in the back seat of a car with comics. And I would pick stuff which was less than stellar. Um, like, I, I gravitated towards, say, Hot Stuff or Casper, which there's a lot of cool stuff in there. I'll defend it. But he got this real, he always picked up the really sophisticated stuff. And, and so the comics, which I later recognized that I had as a child, were things that, you know, Jack Kirby and Alex Toth and um, uh, like House of Mystery Stories or, uh, uh, yeah, it was just, it was just amazing like to me. Like those early 70s, like the Bernie Wrightson era. Yeah, yeah. And um, Lee was really big into... Justice League of America and the uh, Legion of Superheroes and uh, so all the best uh, Spider-Man stuff was there uh, The and, and he also somehow got big uh, it's just crazy and when I when I just think of of, uh, of my childhood and the comic books that were just casually there it's stuff that is like just iconic now and um, we just, it just happened to be there in my childhood. So it was really fun to rediscover everything later as an adult when I was reintroduced to comic, comic books and realized that this, this, the best stuff was, you know, in our blood. And, and I was always getting his comics. You know, my stuff I'd go through was fun, great, trash it. Mom would clean out my room. But Lee was more guarded and protective of his stuff. And, and uh, there was a secondhand store downtown that, and, and in Ro Roseburg, Oregon, where we grew up, um, we were three blocks just up a hill from the, the, that classic Americana downtown street. And you would follow that street down to the river and that's where the secondhand store was. And there would be stacks and stacks of comics for there'd be like a grease pencil mark mm -hmm. of five cents, so you know get comics for a nickel. And Lee has this horrible, horrible tale of uh, of uh, finding a Fantastic Four number one and not having a nickel, so going home to get a nickel and coming back and it not being there. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it it uh, is a it was just a classic, wonderful childhood, and I I, I really appreciate Lee's enthusiasm because it, it it was ingrained in me. Now are you the only siblings or do you have like kind of a big... We have a, then a, a, a younger brother who's like four years younger than me and when I was 11 our, it was the end of summer vacation and, and our mom and dad came and sat us down and told us that uh, mom was moving away. <laughs> <laughs> and since Lee and I were the oldest for 
some reason, and for this I'm very grateful too, uh, we got to choose, and Lee felt he should go with mom, and I wanted to stay with dad. And uh, our younger brother Curtis was too young to choose. And in the, in the issue of DC Solo, which we did, Lee wrote a story, it's the last story, and that secondhand store is in, in the story. And you see uh, Lee and I pulling a little red wagon around with comic books and Curtis sucking his thumb in the little red wagon as we're towing him around. And, but yeah, so Curtis, ne the, he was never bitten by the bug at all. He's a big zombie fan now, but that's about as close to, to relating to any of the pop culture genre and stuff. So did your older brother have to return to comics the same way you did? Or did he, did he stick with it? Um, he, he didn't stick with comics so well. Actually, I take that back. He's always loved comics. In fact, I fell away from him, um, and it was specific, very specific. I had a newspaper route. I was spending my money in comic books, and had a mad crush on Gwen Stacy. And this was shortly after the divorce, and uh, I just it it devastated me I, when they killed off Gwen Stacy. That was it. Mm -hmm. I was done. I, it was like I, I couldn't go near a Spider-Man comic book after that, and uh, so I started spending all my newspaper boy money on uh, record albums instead. I got more into music, and then it wasn't until the. But I always stayed in art, and Lee always stayed with writing. He's always drawn, and he and I, as little kids, would make our own comics. We would, you know, fold the paper over and staple them and all that kind of stuff, and um, but. He continued to write. He, now he actually has his own publishing company. He's wrote several novels, uh, nice. mostly science fiction, a lot of alternate history stuff. Mm -hmm. And Lee's literally a genius. He, um, in fact, it, it, it was uh, one of the bad parts of his childhood. I should let him discuss it. But teachers would set him apart, like you should be more like him, kind of thing. And he he was kind of bullied and. Um, that sort of thing. Yeah. That kind of helps people get more into the creative stuff sometimes too, I imagine. Yeah, but he's very... Did you meet him, Brandon? No, I haven't met him yet. He, he, his second comic show ever was at Seattle. Oh, cool. This, this last year. just caught you briefly when you were <laughs> yeah. in the lobby. I was thinking it's funny that that uh, Gwen Stacy was your, your breaking point because with the kind of how consistently comic characters are always brought back, she's one of the rare ones that it was just stayed dead. Yeah, and at that time, I don't remember... I mean, her father was killed shortly before that in the comics, but I can't remember a character being killed like that before. And I was really young, so it, it was devastating. And um, Have you drawn her yet? Have you professionally? I inked her. I've not drawn her myself. We did a uh, an Ecstatics Dead Girl miniseries that Nick Dragata penciled and I inked, mm. and she was in that. Yeah, I, I didn't have the time to draw it all, but that's as close as I've come. <laughs> it's interesting. It makes me uh, want to see something with you doing almost a, you reconciling to your to, I, to her death that, years that later. That sounds like it could be a very healthy thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine you have, you've had time to deal with it now. but yeah, if, if, if you're going to bring a character back, if, if I were to bring a character back from the dead, that would be the one I'd want to. But all of that stuff, um, I... I I, I go, oh boy, I don't even know if this is appropriate to talk, to talk about, but I have real problems with 
death and existence and thoughts of eternity and life after death. And for, for me, I, I'm mentally and spiritually in a catch-22 where it's just as terrifying. The thought of dying may even be less terrifying than the thought of living forever. Right. So, uh, and I'll have like, these existential panic attacks that are just devastating and for weeks it just takes a long time to get them out of my system. It sounds like the, uh, have you seen the Masters of Comic Art Kirby interview? No. He just says that he, he lives with a lot of questions and he's dealing with these giant comic, cosmic issues and, and kind of simple comic stories were kind of his only way to deal with them. Hmm. Which is interesting because, you know, you think about how people think of Kirby and a lot of the stuff being these kind of silly things, but if it's actually just a person being like, oh my God, I'm a mortal or, you know, I'm a, you know, a living creature in this universe, how do I cope with this? Yeah. Yeah, that's funny because I'll let it, it'll filter into my writing and um, it's a way of me dealing with it or coming to terms with it in a positive way. Mm -hmm. But, um, I mean, I've, I've studied all kinds of spiritual beliefs and ideas and and thrown myself into tr- trying thinking that if I learn what other people believe that somehow I'll find some happy comfortable middle ground of some kind and then um, then the, the way I was raised as well and ultimately I guess you could call it karma just my belief system is boiled down to just being the best person you can be and doing as much good as you can, uh, hoping that that will come back to you right. as opposed to doing bad things and m- making things worse in the world or, and that coming back to you. And that's why family and friends are so important to us because it's the one thing that you can uh, have now and have some kind of comfort now. Do you think about your, your own childhood in relation to your children and grandchildren a lot now? A lot. A lot. Because you were raised fairly religious, right? Um, yeah, until the divorce. Okay. Yeah, yeah. In fact, the, the, the church which we went to was just down the street on that classic Americana, you know, Main Street. It's actually called Jackson Street, but um, that's in that, that, you'll see a picture of the church in that story in D.C. Solo, too. Mm-hmm. And, um, so, yeah, Sunday, and, and when we were kids, before the... Uh, sometimes we'd, we'd have to go twice on Sunday. <laughs> and because we were so close and could walk to it, it was, there were no excuses. And then after the divorce, um, Dad was like, that's the end of that. <laughs> right. did you, did, was it a positive or negative experience or just boring? Um, I think mostly boring. But now all of my memories of it are positive mm-hmm. because it's playing with, other kids and Christmas pageants and you know Santa Claus coming to the church to give us candy right. those are the memories that have stuck so I didn't have any the only the only bad memory I have was uh, one year I was a shepherd in the Christmas play and I threw up goulash <laughs> I just remember looking that's at the that's a terrible floor. thing to throw up. yeah and I just remember looking at it and going oh that's what that's why it's in my brain because I remember looking at what I had ate I guess fairly recently <laughs> but yeah it's mostly positive because you know people um, in later later religious experiences you're dealing with judgmental people and, mm-hmm. and 
uh, or hypocritical people, but as a child, you just think of people being kind and you know positive. So yeah, the childhood memories are pretty good, but uh, it's it's ultimately I just resolved that it, there are other things I'd rather do, other places I'd rather be mm-hmm. with my family. I'm curious because looking at your work um, and how kind of Madman is like a series where you kind of creatively found your voice and I was looking at the I think it's the second book um, where you're kind of introducing concepts from, from Mormonism and I'm wondering how that kind of works because I kind of see Madman away as a little bit of your autobio like yeah. autobio through a lot of lenses thrown in yeah, um, and just kind of you're talking about kind of resolving and how that plays, like putting that into your, into your personal work and utilizing that as part of your story. It's, it's weird. I'm kind of reflecting what Brandon was saying about Jack Kirby. I mean, here he's doing silly comic books and, but he's, he has all of these, you know, spiritual and cosmic concerns that he's mm-hmm. filtering through his work. I got a guy running around in white, you know, superhero underwear and, um, He's dealing with these questions of existence and life, and um, with Madman Frank Einstein became more and more me, and to where I could pretty much, and I guess maybe early on subconsciously and now more consciously, some of the questions he would ask and the things he was concerned with, I would was my way of reaching out to other people, hoping that maybe somebody would have answers for me or words of comfort. Because um, I mean, it, 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 the, the, these existential freakouts I have—they're crippling. They're painful. They're terrifying. Yeah. And if I can, um, and the the only time I, I they either just kind of fade away, but then they've happened. They happen fairly regularly every few years, and I, so I can only assume they're going to happen again. But what I then find is that it's a way of exercising these things through my work. Also, the positive things like relationships, you know, loving somebody as much as I love Laura, the way Frank loves Joe, and um, the whole, I, I don't know if you ever saw um, Altered States, mm, yeah. but there's a similar resolution at the end where, you know, it, it, William Hurt's character pretty much thinks that, finds that it, it's almost like everything's meaningless. And yet the one thing that, that at least you can grasp now and maybe has some e- eternal, you know, echoness or reverberation is love and, um, you know, just the, 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 the path, just the sharing and having, having that. So it must mean something if we can have those kinds of emotions and those kinds of connections. It's kind of like the end of True Detective. Exactly. I'm, I'm oh my gosh. Oh wait, did you, did you watch that? <laughs> no, I, you know, well, I actually just Shelley Bond is one of her best friends. She's the first editor I ever had. She's in, you know in charge of Vertigo and and uh, in Seattle she was people were talking about because the show was fairly recent. Yeah. And she was disappointed. She thought everybody should have died and stuff. And I was <laughs> I was furious. Like, are you kidding me? That. That that show was so bleak, and everything the Russ character kept saying was this: the thoughts that I struggled not having. Yeah. And these thoughts come into my head, and I just want them out of my head because it's just bleakness. And like, why do you even get out of bed in the morning? And for him to have that revelation at the end, and to have this connection, this kind of through the veil, this connection of love and 
and light and, and optimism meant everything to me. That last episode made the whole series a masterpiece for me. It just yeah. made everything worthwhile to, to struggle through all that and to have that connection. Here's a guy that he, he should hate. These two guys should hate each other. Yeah. And yet they have this incredible bond at, at the end of the show. And th there's that human connection. And that's what I'm uh, always hoping for. Because when I'm making comics, especially the stuff I write myself, it, it is first and foremost selfishness. It is me telling a story I want to tell for my own entertainment or to exercise something out of myself or to ask questions or to, to create a mystery that I can solve for myself. And then second, secondly, but almost as important as my selfish um, motives, is to hopefully get some kind of feedback that will make me feel connected to, to people that oh, yeah. I'm sharing the planet with. I was going to ask if you feel like your readership is, is, has been... Do you, do you feel like you're doing having a conversation with your readers when you ask these questions in your work? Um, more and more, especially now with like Facebook and Twitter, which I avoided like the plague. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to have anything to do with that stuff. I, first of all, I didn't understand it. But now, especially with Twitter, where... Um, like I, I just sometimes I, you can just have a really pre pretentious thought yeah. and just throw it out there. <laughs> That's what it's there for. I yeah, like I think I said, uh, it's taken all of eternity for us to come to this moment that we're all sharing this planet right now. So can't we just be a little bit nicer to each other? <laughs> and then to have, even if it's just one other person say, yeah, man. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Or, or you know, you're going to get people like, ugh. Shut up, or you know, but uh, but like, yeah, that's right. You know, this is and it's a miracle that we all exist and can think and speak to each other. And well, it's great to have that openness with your readership too. Where people, yeah, and and there, I have this theory that you know, the work you put out, you kind of um, you hook the fans that you ask for. You know, yeah. And so, imagine with Madman, you get a fair amount of just very positive people. Very positive, don't you think, hon? Huh? Lori just walked in. Um, just the, the feedback we get from the people that, that, that support our stuff. Our oh, work. definitely. They're generally really great, positive people. And, but with the feedback, I mean, of course, before with the letter column, you finish your work, and then months later it's, it's published, and then you get the feedback through, you know. I, I, somewhere I still have a big bag of fan mail. And... Now it's instant, mm -hmm. you know, it's like instant gratification, even, even more so, uh, Marvel, um, I'm mean, just today, Dan Slott tweeted something that I had drawn, drawn and his reaction to it. So it's like his positive reaction to what he just saw me draw, mm -hmm. teasing the people what they're going to see in like a month or so, and then getting feedback. First of all, the feedback from him, my collaborator, right. but then also the anticipatory feedback of the people that he's teasing what he just saw. And then, like what just happened with the first issue coming back, um, where they, they had shown images, and now people had seen the context of it in the story. Mm -hmm. And so it, there's way more feedback now. It, it's, it's pretty incredible. And I, I like it. I, I, I usually have a problem with you know, future shock and change. And, right. <laughs> <laughs> but this, is, this has been really gratifying, that immediate... Feedback. Yeah, well, it just seems like it's um, adding to connection to other people. Yeah, or my art blog is actually my favorite thing. That's the main thing that talked me into doing Facebook and, and Twitter was that on my art blog, 
if I do a sketch or something, I put it up there and people can comment to it. But with Twitter and Facebook, it's like, hey man, I just put some something new up here. You want to look at it? And people look at it and I get immediate feedback. So um, that I like. And, and, and you know, Simon and Brandon, we should say Simon. Simon Roy's in the room. Simon, and, Simon um, Roy. <laughs> but it can be pretty uh, lonely. Um, I mean, I, I know I, drawing and telling stories is something I feel like I have to do. But um, the loneliness that can set in when you have to get so much work done in such a period of time you have to sacrifice, you know, socializing at times. Um, that can be pretty bleak at times, but... Uh, right, it does change things if you can just type a couple <clears throat> things back and forth to people. Yeah, you, you have some kind of exchange with other human beings, even if it's not a face-to-face. One thing I was just thinking about with your work, because hearing how you describe your, your personal work of, like, exploring these existential ideas... Um, it really likes for me kind of cements like that difference of um, a different sort of approach for for something like Madman in comparison with um, and this is my own presumptions is looking at Silver Surfer and Fantastic Four um, is kind of that like creative side of like um, playing with the media you're in so like working because I know we've talked about Kirby a bunch and we're probably going to talk about Kirby again I don't think we'll ever stop talking about Kirby. Yeah, I hope never. I, I, in fact, you can't talk about him too much. He's too important. And it, it's really frustrating for me when people either aren't familiar with his work or don't appreciate it, or, or the fact that he probably saved the industry single-handedly at least a couple of times. So are you saying almost that one of them feels like art to you and the other one feels like kind of exploration of craft? I, I don't want to say art, not necessarily that, um, as much as the approach to the art. And so, like, with, with that stuff, I almost feel like it's almost like, you know, like a fan comic? Like, when you're like, I'm doing a Kirby comic. Right. And, like, I kind of get that that kind of feel like um, it kind of takes a different part of your brain. Yes. Maybe. Yeah. Well, for me, I, I, I can go to my personal work anytime. And, mm-hmm. and uh, um, even if it's something like Red Rocket 7, which was very personal to me with my hysterical affection for rock music and rock history, rock and roll history. I know that I've set the stage where I can pretty much do any project I want. Mm -hmm. And so that's always there. But one thing that is really gratifying and exciting for me are collaborations and getting into somebody else's head, you know, so whether it's Matt Fraction or Neil Gaiman or um, now Dan Slott um, or my brother, Mm-hmm. It's really fun. It feels like you're playing. It feel it's it's very reminiscent of me and my brother on grandma's porch drawing our own comics, and so exchanging ideas and like wouldn't it be cool if we did this, you know? And you get really excited about this sort of thing. And and um, I don't think there's it's I think it's exciting that you can tap into that childhood enthusiasm for something, but then approach it with uh, the intellectualism of an adult. And the collaborations are always growth experiences for me. It, it, there's, um, I, I always take my biggest stretches artistically because, again, I'm trying to find what's in somebody else's head. As, like, when I do my own stuff, I know how successful I am in getting it from my brain, through my hand, onto mm-hmm. the paper. Um, with a collaborator, I, it's not as 
sure. And so what I find is my brain stretches more. It, it searches more. It, it seeks out to make sure that I'm interpreting it the best way I can in the time that I have to do it. And so that whole challenge is, is, is a lot of fun. And then couple that with, um, you know, lifelong characters that you've had great affection for, whether it was the Fantastic Four or, or from the Fantastic Four Silver Surfer. Um, it, it's really thrilling. And Silver Surfer, I can't tell you how exciting that is. He really is one of my lifelong favorite characters. Madman is largely inspired. At, the look of Madman is very much inspired by Silver Surfer. Oh yeah, I was going to ask if the eyes you're drawing Silver Surfer, if they're Kirby or Bushema influence more, you think? Um, prob- probably a mixture of both, but if I had to choose, it would be Kirby, because I just had way more exposure with Kirby. Although the, um, the very first issue of Silver Surfer that John Buscema did, um, we weren't allowed to take comic books to school, so mm-hmm. I had that comic book and I cut the Surfer out of the cupboard paste it on my school note. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it kills me now when I see what it what that comic is worth. It almost sounds like the comics themselves are as much a collaborator as your co-creator, like, in a way, because, like, you're collaborating with, kind of, the tradition you're, or the, the series you're falling into yeah. or working in, like, you know, you're working with that Ushama and that Kirby Silver Surfer, and that's kind of informing your Silver Surfer. For sure. And with... With FF, with Matt Fraction, we knew we were setting out to do a 16-issue arc that was essentially Fantastic Four's greatest hits. And so there was that fandom and the reference to the comics and the jumping off from there and to make reference to things that either you would be familiar with and be excited about the reference or be, re- be introduced to it or the concept to it for the first time. And then expand upon that. And then later when Lee jumped onto the book, the things that he tapped into and used that massive brain of his to like, you know, things about pin particles and, and, or something as simple as uh, superheroes are, the heroes are primary colors, the villains are secondary colors. Something that he pointed out just on a lark and that got a huge reaction. So it, 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 it's so layered. And so it's always interesting. And, um, and that makes it, just a lot of fun. Now, if we're talking about collaboration, and you're sitting right next to probably your biggest collaborator, for sure. Um, and and that's something interesting to me. It's just how the kind of um, how that came about. Um, was that something yourself, Laura, that you'd been interested in? Was coloring? Had it just kind of like something you jumped into? I've been painting since I was eight, and then um, we met at school. We were both art majors and then we got married and I quit everything and he would get mad say you know why why you're not doing anything and they started doing comics and they're black and white and I said if your comics ever go to color I'll paint them for you and he held me to it now the the painting of that that would so she only does it because she made this 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 promise (laughs) (laughs) no I love it it's fun Uh, was that a new learning curve for you Um, were you doing paint like was it on acetate at that point, or... You mean when I started doing comics? Yeah. Gosh, the first... Yeah, we were painting on... What was that paper? First it was like watercolor paper with... Dr. Like, Martin Meeks. Yeah, and, and it was... it was uh, the, the process was awful. It was... Uh, um, ultimately, you, she would 
paint on gray tone copies on watercolor paper with Dr. Martin dyes and then later the black would be placed over it and they were horribly off register because the watercolor paper warped and but it was our first effort with with colors then soon after that it was um, where you would just watercolor uh, on a photocopy and then you would uh, draw a line from every single color and write the color code. That was for the it. worst. That oh was my the, gosh. The when I, lips? Yeah, when I, yeah. when I, it's It'd when be set people, off for separation. Yeah, it's when other people did the separations for you, for me. And then once I got my own computer and was able to do my own separations, that was amazing. That was fun. The first books were a little shaky. <laughs> <laughs> Just trying to learn the whole system. It's so yeah. nice now, coloring, you can, you can look at your screen and know how it's going to look on paper. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, when you, when you color, do you have a, do you listen to things? Do you do you, uh, do you zone out and just get into it, or is it more of a? Well, thinking? working with Mike now up here, I kind of listen to what he's listening to. A lot of talk shows and stuff. <laughs> but um, when a I lot, get, a lot of Letterman, Fallon, Kimmel. Yeah. <laughs> I, I usually like listening to um, books on tape. No, no, that's so, that's what I get into when I color. Yeah. Is there anything? Do you have a do you have a genre of books on tape you listen to? What's ever in our book club. Yeah, nice. So. <laughs> Now, um, one of the things is, I mean, your work, it's so particular, your coloring style, like, it's pretty, like, people know right away, it's Laura Elred coloring. Um, I'm curious about, like, kind of your own development of a coloring style, like, was there um, certain things you look at that really stuck out to you, that you kind of want to gravitate towards? Well, we both really like pop art. And that was kind of the starting of that, and just um, I look at everything. So I think we w w we both agreed we wanted something classic or timeless, mm -hmm. and um, so initially we started with almost strictly flat colors, and a lot of the stuff that Laura was looking at was like um, what Charles Burns was doing with color or Dan Klaus, like just real classic, simple flat coloring. And then, um, Daniel Torres. Yeah, Daniel Torres was a big influence on her. There's a lot of European artists, uh, Mobius. Disney, Disney, um, Disney books. I love the colors in Disney books. Oh, yeah. Like, where's the, yeah, we have this art of Disney Golden Books right here. We love looking at animation books. We got a lot of books on Warner Brothers. And, and that's when, when you're talking about the acetate, there was a while where she was, uh, you would take a, a black and white shot of, the artwork on no, Bernie acetate. Bernie did, did that on the Everyman. And then, all of those those first bubblegum pages were done. That bubblegum card yeah. were done. But what you, what you do is you the it's it, their animation cells essentially. She that. even had a cell paint. What's it called? Cell paint. Oh yeah, acrylics. But it's actually literal cell paint right. for specifically for animation. Oh, that's that's her. Did you have to wear the white gloves? Yeah. Remember the good old days? I remember. <laughs> um, yeah, but Ber Bernie Moreau, uh, who does the jam. He uh, does an amazing Yeah, he's... Oh, yeah. Yeah, he did... The first color book we did for um, Marvel was called The Everyman, and Bernie colored all that. And But uh, anyway, that that that's real time. It's not, not very uh, um, efficient, but it can look really cool, and... and now we, over time, 
got to where the computer's working for us instead of us working for the computer. Where she'll take my original art, I'll do traditional line art, she'll mm -hmm. scan that, and then give it back to me, and then I can do anything I want with the original art with textures. So I can do my own modeling with uh, gray tone, watercolors, or, or graphite smudges, create any kind of texture I want on the original art. And then she scans it again, and she can turn all that into any color she wants while maintaining the pure integrity of the first line art scan. Mm -hmm. So it's all, it's not computer modeling, it's all Mike's art. Anytime you see a shading on the face or shading in the, in the clothes, any, in the trees, um, I separate it and can take it and make it pure color. And um, so I'm not messing with the different filters in the computer. That's really interesting. Like that's in a way almost like traditional with so like everything the you see on the, in a way. Yeah, like everything it, you see it on is. the pages all the layers. Art. Yeah. Um, yeah, and each, each color will uh, like on the original art, it looks gray, but she'll have different layers for each color over the over the flats, which is how she separates it out. <laughs> but they're, the control is amazing, and I'm I'm stunned how that that how efficient she is with it and how quick she is with it, and yet the choices you can make after that, um, and the opacity of each layer with the texture. So you can you can reduce the opacity to where the texture is very subtle, or in your face where it looks like. It was done with a uh, color pencil. What about the things that are like uh, dot tones in the new Silver Surfer? Was that was that something you added or something that the were, dots? Yeah. Oh, those well, are that's, filters. That's Mike likes the dots. So he okay. puts in the dots. I thought those are really interesting because it's oh, almost done. <laughs> it seems like a modern no, reaction that's, that's to, like your, to pop that's art. That's like almost. your thing, the dot thing. So. It's like, well, it's like if you're working off the old Kirby comics and those dots are there, it's like yeah. now you can control when you want the audience to notice those or not. Right. So what is it? Cool. The Zipatone or is it the Kirby Crackle type? It's kind of it's this it's is yeah it's kind of a Zipatone look, but it's it's very it's very like you know almost Lichtenstein or something. Oh, like Kirby really. Like the dots. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The dots. They just exaggerated a little bit more just to remind people that it's a comic book and that there there is a history, um, but at the same time try to make it a little progressive, a little contemporary, um, and so I think this technique that we've developed is very contemporary, but. But ultimately, the reason for it is so that the artwork is organic as possible, that it looks like human beings did it instead of a computer did it. Mike's always like, "How can we make things better? How can we?" It's always like we have to do, we have to progress, we have to, you know, let's make, and we know it can be, you know, better, faster, or whatever. <laughs> better, faster, stronger. <laughs> no, but that's just. And another thing, we should always, all hum the theme to the six million yeah. dollar man. No, but that's that's totally you. And then another thing that's that's totally Mike. Ever since, um, gosh, ever since I can remember, he's always like, "This is going to be our toughest working year. This is going to be our hardest working year." <laughs> After this year, we can like settle down. No, this is the year. He's been, been saying that for like thirty years. Or, but hasn't then, each year been the toughest hardest <laughs> year? <laughs> so that's a cool trick. <laughs> well, you're pretty productive. Like you're doing. Um, you know, a monthly book, and you've been doing monthly books for a while. I love it. Do you he do does like... more than a monthly book. He's doing covers. He's, he's doing like other things. So yeah, he's. Do you kind of do like the Dave Sims schedule thing? Like every day, put in that amount of hours, or is it just kind of? No, he continuous... works all the time. I never work. He works all the I, time. I would be embarrassed using the word work. 
Yeah. Well, it's funny because our little granddaughter Bowie walked in the room one day and Mike wasn't in here and she like was like, what's going on? Because he's like fixture in here. Mm -hmm. He's always at his desk. Well, just looking at this space, it's so obvious that it's not like, like how would you separate a work life and a home life here? Yeah, I don't. I bet you've I, got comics in your kitchen. <laughs> well, even even with the kids, you know, we do music together. There, there's always something being created around here. And across the street, our oldest son, Han, his house is a, a giant music studio. I mean, the, the, it looks like a professional music studio. It doesn't look like somebody lives there. It looks right. like people record music there. You know, it, um, it, it's, for us, it's just a natural extension of who we are. Just, right, just constant expression. Yeah, the idea of going somewhere else to, quote, work is alien to me. Because um, this, this was what I was doing for fun when I was a, a TV reporter. You know, my spare time was done being creative. Um, so I would be doing this whether I was getting paid to do it or not. It's what I enjoy doing. Now there is like a 15-year gap, it seems like, between the death of Gwen Stacy, maybe less, maybe more, just presumptively, between that and when you got back into comics. Is that about right? I think it was the early 70s, uh, obviously we can look it up when, when Gwen Stacy was killed off, but um, yeah, the, I pretty much ignored most comics until uh, the exact time that I had a friend, Charlie Custis, who um, we were on a security detail at the Air Force Academy together and uh, just started talking movies and music and stuff and and so we started going to movies together it was like my movie buddy and he knew i was an artist because i was doing sculptures at the time and um and was always painting and then i also started writing a screenplay called dead air and started storyboarding it and he was like dude make it a comic book and uh i was like oh, i don't know and then um he started giving me comic books to get me excited about his other passion, which was comic books. And among the stuff that he gave me was uh, The Dark Knight Returns, Mr. X, which then turned me on to Love and Rockets. And Mr. X really made a huge impact on me. Those first four issues that the Hernandez brothers did. Um, and that's how you met Steve Siegel too, right? Yeah, the first comic book I ever met. His first comic book was just published. It was called Amazon. Mm -hmm. And... Um, so he, we went to the comic shop and Steve was there and Charlie was like, hey, that dude over there wrote that comic and Steve was actually signing his books in the back. Uh, Kafka. He was, yeah. Oh no, Amazon came after, yeah, Kafka was first, you're right. Was Steve, uh, Stefan Gadiano. And then uh, Amazon was, Tim Sell was after that. Yeah. So Kafka, he was, he, he took his books off the shelf and was signing them and putting them back on the shelf with a little in the little card that's signed. You know, so he's always thinking, you know, promote your work, promote your yeah. work. But um, Steve like gave me a, started giving me a crash course. So all this stuff which Charlie was giving me, Stephen Siegel's advice, and so then yeah, I just started drawing my my comic as uh, or my screenplay as a comic book, and to. To date this specifically, there were like two more issues of Watchmen yet to come. Okay. So that's exactly when I uh, fell in love with comic books again. But Mr. X was really, there was, I was loving it all. He gave me like a giant stack of Daredevils that Frank Miller had done. And in like a weekend, I, all I did was lay on the couch and read all of those Daredevils. 
And but Mr. X looked like you know one of the things I always loved about buying record albums was I'd buy a, a rec record album. And a lot of times I would buy record albums because the album art was killer. Like I bought I got into Emerson Lincoln Palmer because Brain Solid Surgery had a Giger cover mm -hmm. that opened up, you know, it, it unfolded and stuff. And I always fell for stuff like that. If a cover looked really cool and I'd read about it in one of my rock magazines that it was good, you know, I would get into it. Bowie, David Bowie, always had amazing album covers. Yes. And so you put the record on and you'd just sit there and read the liner notes and just kind of get into the world of it. And Mr. X was the first comic book that gave me that rock and roll feeling. Well, you know, Dean Motter did album covers. Yeah, I didn't know it at the time. Yeah. But it makes sense now because you open up Mr. X and the uh, where normally the inside front cover would either be a black and white ad or nothing. The inside front cover and the first page was a double spread that was all glossy and colorful. It looked like opening a record album. Mm -hmm. And yeah, that, that had a huge impact on me. And then of course, Jaime, Jaime Hernandez's artwork was just, I just fell in love with it instantly. It's funny because like, that's the exact same story almost that Seth has. Oh, really? Yeah, it was... Uh, Seth en ended up doing Mr. X. Ken Stacy, who has the exact same shirt you have. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I also um, noticed that every place we've stopped at so far has got Jaime Hernandez art on the walls. That's oh. true. We were at 11... Or, I don't uh -oh. know, Tuesday. She didn't fall very far. Did I the story <laughs> of uh, Mr. X, did that connect with you, though? As well, yeah. The story? I love the story. There's the very first page right there. Oh, yeah. Cool. I got that from Jaime in uh, Oakland. Like, it, it was one of the greatest days of my life when he showed up and had, he decided to sell the pages for the first time. And I was the nice. first person at him. Uh, yeah, so it was like, I'll take this one. Probably so, made more off that page awesome. than they did off the book. Could be, yeah. They, it, that's crazy when you hear stories like that. That was, uh, I think, a heartbreaking thing for Seth. It's like, Excited to work on it, and then he finds out later just like what happened. And... Yeah. yeah, I was wondering. It, it it seemed like the the books that you mentioned at the time, getting back into the Mister X, was one of the ones that um, kept the mystery going. Like it's such a. I, I don't even know who Mister X is now, and I probably read. I, I don't know if they ever revealed who he was, or I think they revealed, but it didn't really matter. Yeah, it and was... it's like Twin Peaks or something. Where... Yeah, and also there's still other. But wait, you said this happened. How come you're saying this is happening now? So they contradicted. Right. So it's it's kind of that questions thing again. Yeah. 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 So you end up ha ha having the idea of it that you prefer, which is awesome. Right. So I know who Mister X is to me, and I loved it. I loved it so much. And even even after the Hernandez brother stuff, I picked it up, and and it was exciting to see. You know where you know Seth went mm -hmm. from there you know developing this this deco sensibility yeah yeah it's, it's, it's fantastic but I just I loved I, I was a sucker for the th uh, the slickness of it mm -hmm. and the same with uh, all of the other stuff that my friend Charlie was giving me like Dark Knight Returns of the, the prestige format you know the bookshelf format so it wasn't just these you know pulpy staple pamphlets anymore which is funny because now those are my favorite comics you know I go back and I, I love the smell of them and, and I, when I did Atomics I wanted it to look and feel and smell like that and I actually spent extra money on the newsprint paper than this the slip paper would have been less expensive at that time right 
I always think that's funny. It's like slick paper now is cheaper because it's just what everyone uses in comics. Yeah, there's just more of it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was it was, it was a bad business decision, <laughs> but but I had to do it, and I'm glad I did. Um, and then you know the collections you can get fancier with that stuff, but but yeah, I I, I love the uh, the tactile, loose, casual feel of a classic comic book. And, uh, and then for my bookshelves, obviously, I, that's where I archive everything when the nice collections come out. Mm -hmm. Do you, um, so I'm presuming you have a lot more books than is up there. Um, do you kind of cycle through what you have, or is this kind of like the inspiration wall? That's the inspiration wall, for sure. Um, yeah, there, and, and also, um, I'll go through and find that uh, a lot of stuff that I found interesting at the time or was curious about at the time um, d just doesn't hold anything for me anymore mm -hmm. and so I'll trade that in for other things but that rarely happens anymore as I get pickier about what I get in the first place but especially that those first 10 years I was buying everything I had to have everything I, I, anything that if anybody said anything nice about any book I had to get it so I could see why they liked it and then find out whether it meant anything to me or not. And the artists that stuck have continued to stick. Mm -hmm. And um, like we already mentioned Charles Burns and Dan Klaus and Daniel Torres and Mobius. Obviously Jack Kirby. I'm looking Alex at a Dave Cooper toy up there. Oh yeah. Dave Cooper's Jack fantastic. Darrow. And a lot of these guys, it just kills me that they don't work in comics more than they... Uh, a uh, friend of uh, Dave Cooper's, uh, Patrick McKeon. Oh, he's instance. amazing. Fantastic, and but he d just doesn't work in comics, you know. Actually, just, the hair hair shirt was the, you know, big burst of awesomeness. Mm -hmm. We're going to visit Tom Herpick in a bit. The what? I was sorry to cut you off, but we're going to visit Tom, Tom Herpick, and he's a type of artist. He's one of the guys in Adventure Time, this old friend of mine. And he's one of those artists I just describe as a Pat McEwen because he's like, he's doing these amazing comics that just feel like light years ahead of most stuff but he's just has so little work on shelves that you can find yeah yeah and then, like uh, and you got use Schwarte and uh, mm -hmm. like there's a McEwen did a really cool Mad Men thing recently didn't he yes fantastic the originals are in there in the frame to the the right of there um, he went crazy on it too I mean, he drew like the same figures like four or five times <laughs> uh Oh, it's fantastic. But, and it was all pieced together, which is strange to get into that mindset, you know, um, that you would actually have it in pieces and then assemble it. And That's kind of the... Yeah, I, that was awesome getting that from him. You ever see any original, like, Chester Brown process stuff? Yeah, in fact, the Every Man in That Book, I, I told you Bernie Moreau and I did. Mm -hmm. um, Chester inked some of the panels. Oh, wow. Yeah. And somewhere on here I have the figure that he inked of the Every Man, but... But yeah, the whole patching together yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, he'll again. do like every figure on the page as uh, a vellum layer. Oh, wow. And he'll just move it around until like he has the composition huh. of how he wants it, and then he'll redraw that. Wow. Oh, interesting. I've heard yeah. Shaky Kane does something interesting like that, where he'll just draw everything different sizes and then resize them. And <laughs> has that weird, that's why it, it, things have different line. Shaky Kane is really cool, too. I, that, I mean, you start putting all these artists together and you can get a good idea for what I really get excited about. Just something like stuff that's really um, 
not not iconic or or but maybe graphic, almost where they're great storytellers, but where you could teach each, you could take any panel up from the story. So smooth, consistent, wonderful, engrossing storytelling, but you can take any element from that story and, and put it on a t-shirt, and it's beautiful. Yeah. You know what I mean? So that, those those that's the kind of stuff that I I get excited about. Now. Sitting in this room, tons of original art. Um, what was it about that book that bit you so thoroughly? About original art? Well, um, it, it's, it's just a happy accident. When I started making a career of this, I've been doing this full-time since January of 1990, and then it was probably April of 1990 that I went to my first comic show, WonderCon in Oakland. And um, there's original art there and being a collector of record albums and movie posters and various magazines and obviously comic books the ultimate collector's item in my mind is an original page there's only one it's you know there's thousands of an issue of a comic book there's only that one original piece of art so as a collector's item it's it's thrilling but also as an artist you can see where the brush moved around. You can see the you can see pencil lines that aren't in the published art, you know, and in the published book. So they're educational and inspiring. And being in the position where you're at a comic book show with your peers who are also making comic books, you find that uh, you're making your own money with your own artwork. Everybody's kind of trading mm-hmm. artwork back and forth. And even the art dealers who might have these high price items, they're wanting your stuff, and so um, it does. And and well, it it just doesn't feel like you're throwing money away. It's it's almost it almost feels like you're getting the stuff for free, and um, because I don't feel like my artwork, you know, it doesn't have the monetary value that that somebody uh, an art dealer might have on it. So for me, it's like something that I made, and yet this person that has something that I want is willing to take something that I made for that. So it's an easy sacrifice. Um, I've, I've gotten a lot more possessive of my original art, thinking more about my kids and the value of it. But um, when there's something that I want, it's nice to know that I can you know, open a drawer and, and uh, hopefully trade rather than ask Laura if I can buy it. <laughs> and, 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 and then over time, you know, it just, it just starts to uh, amass and, and it's amazing to me. Like, well, that first page for Mr. X, for instance, I, I think I got it for pennies on the dollar. I mean, honey wasn't asking that much for it. And, um, that I do know I paid cash for. Um, I, I, I just, it was like, I'm not yeah. going to haggle. I'm not going to suggest anything else. It's just, here it is. I want it. And it's important. Yeah. Out of any page, I imagine that's probably the most kind of creatively important. Yeah, just again to the fact that it opened me not only to um, fall in love with comic books again as a medium, but also make me want to do them myself. Because Love and Rockets was, so Mr. X led me to Love and Rockets, but Love and Rockets was the book that said, you can do this. You can do anything you want. And Love and Rockets led me to Yummy Fur and 
uh, which man, if that's not an example of you can do whatever you want, then what is? You know, that that that's the purest. That's on so many levels. Oh man, that, <laughs> tell me another book that as pure stream of consciousness the way that is. It's yeah. a fantastic book, and it feels, it feels like he was just messing around, and then it comes together in the end. That, yeah, in this amazing way. Well, there's a theory that any problem, like for mystery writers or writers in general, any problem that your mind can create already has this solution hmm. and yummy fur would be an example of that how the the pieces all can come together again and finding how the pieces all fit together is is the exciting part of the the writing process and the storytelling process and so yummy fur is a great example for all of that and it's just such a thrilling electric book and i mean the first time I read it, I was disgusted, and I mean, and still I look at it, and it's, and it's, it's disgust. It's, it is, it's a disgusting book, but there's, it's so intoxicating and hypnotic, and well, Ed the Happy Clown, that whole yeah. story. Yeah. I don't even think he wanted me to read it. I, I did for weeks. I had that, hid that from you, and so I started reading it, and I thought it was great. And he, he couldn't believe that I liked it. But then we went on a quest to find every yummy fur woman. Well, issue number nine was like the one that was really, yeah. and so we went on a treasure hunt. There, there's that whole collector's mentality again, mm -hmm. and I have that on so many different levels. But it was so exciting that, that some tiny little comic shop in in Podunk, California had, yeah. had issue number nine. And I, I mean, back, we were calling the Yellow Pages. Every time we would go through a town, I'd go to comic book stores in the Yellow Pages and call it, do you have this, do you have this, do you have this? And that's how I would like to fill my collections. Wasn't the, that a book that stayed out of trade for years? Well, it's not complete yet in trade. At all. No. Interesting. I no. mean, and he redid the ending and there's, there's, so yeah, you, if you don't have the original issues, you don't have at all and there's all this extra I imagine the Jesus stuff never been no it's not, not at done. all he never finished it but, I mean he's he finished two of the gospels Mark and Matthew and I I'm, I've, I keep bugging like just release those collect those yeah. you know, get those out I'm there I'm sure John Corley would love to do it I love how he bank. did that I always think about how he uh, he changed Jesus's size depending on how important he was in a panel well no it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't that it's also um, they were drawn different styles um, he well, didn't do the same for Mark as he did for Matthew. Yeah, Mark, he's almost handsome. There's, he almost looks like a rock star. And then Matthew's kind of mean and, and uh, almost yeah, I ugly. I really like that look of him. Yeah. He's a thug in that one. That's like where the woman was bleeding and he's just kind of like, man. <laughs> Me and Jesus. Yeah, it was it's really interesting. Jesus. Like his whole analysis on it. But those are fascinating. Man, I... I, I I really wanted him to keep doing those. I, I like everything he does. I, I think he's just endlessly interesting. I always think of the the two issues, the is it Helder and then the drawing Helder? Yes. Where he kind of goes and analyzes how he just did this comic and like, what did I do right? What did I do wrong? And, what and, was I thinking about? And showing it to his friends. Yeah. You know, what their reactions are and that is fascinating. Did as as someone who was creating, did that kind of speak to you and kind of like huge, like kind of rewind you in a way and like okay, what's my process and? Well, first and foremost, it made me feel like everything I was doing was totally insignificant, yeah, because it didn't have those kind of layers. It wasn't it wasn't that insightful or exploratory or experimental. Um, 
he's there. Here's somebody that clearly is inspired to do something, and then he just does it. Um, and maybe that's why he's not as prolific as he could, or we'd like him to be, because maybe he's waiting for that inspiration. But he's when he does do something, oh man! Well, always. And then when when it comes up with paying for it, the only thing I was disappointed about that was the size. I just wanted it to be twice as big. Do you know what he's doing now? I don't. The sequel. Oh, to paying for it? The the relationship. Oh, and the, she's oh, co-writing okay. it. Really? Yeah. Wow, that was a big question that kind of left the, after the first one. It's interesting, yeah. because his work has gotten so much more controlled over the years, too. Like You look at, at the Yummy First stuff compared to paying for it, just the, the drawing seems more... And he, he's almost trying to put out his um, persona like he's this like automaton. Well, it's yeah. interesting, because like... Um, Louis Riel is very influenced by um, Laura Finetti, uh Harold Gray very influenced by Harold Gray uh, yeah um, paying for it it's like a Steve Ditko comic almost but I wonder why he wanted it so tiny why is the book so small if he wants it to look like a novel or something more than mm. a comic book so something interesting about that is the way that Chester Brown portrays himself because early on you know he had like long flowing hair and he was this handsome young man and I remember seeing a Polaroid of him on the wall of a comic store and he had these acid washed pre-ripped jeans on mm-hmm. and he was just you know he looked like a like a rock star and yeah. it's interesting like he's his image has really changed and your image you know you and Paul Pope and a couple guys like that your your image we probably talked about this before but your image is in your work a lot and you know your characters look more like you than, than probably the average artist because I think all artists draw themselves but yeah, I, I've heard a lot of people talk about that sort of thing. You're those creators you can spot across a, a room because you're like, oh, he looks like a Mike Albert drawing. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I, I haven't heard that before. But like, I'm, for me, the uh, the best examples of that are uh, Dave Stevens it mm-hmm. looks like the Rocketeer, and um, Matt Wagner looks like Kevin Matchstick. Um, I'm kids, and especially with Kevin Matchstick, that's. That that is Matt Wagner, mm-hmm. um, and then as as Kevin Matchstick ages, Matt draws him that way too. Um, but oh, there's an, another example of that. Um, well, like Jack Kirby, the, mm-hmm. and and this is a really strange way to look at it because the the Hulk and the Thing look like Jack Kirby, mm-hmm. and so here you're saying a guy that's made of orange rocks <laughs> looks like right. Jack Kirby. But there's something physically recognizable about him as that character. That's interesting. But yeah, for these artists that, that draw themselves, like Seth, where they have these, again, almost like, like a Mickey Mouse t-shirt, you could take that iconic cartoon image of them and put it on a shirt, and it's, it's a comic book character. Yeah. And, and then, yeah, you got your, your rock star, Chester Brown, and then you got your frequenter of horrors, Chester Brown. Yeah, and it's strange because that's... <laughs> Chester of ill repute. There's not, there's, not really, there's not a lot of years between those two Chester Browns, and I wonder at some point he was like, I'm a different guy now, I'm going to present myself different in my work. Yeah, and I, I wonder also, does he still live in the one-room No, no, hovel he, he and... has, uh, he owns a condo. Um, so I think... The he, hovel estates. Yeah, no, it's right, to, right downtown Toronto, I think. Huh. I think he's got a really nice place. And I've heard he has a computer. Wow. Yeah. Computer. Was, uh, apparently there's a secret email address. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. 
Chester at payingforit.com. <laughs> yeah, it, it's interesting stuff. Um, it's um, maybe but I, I'm sorry for interrupting, yeah. but it just I, I I'm so interested in in how other cartoonists live. You know, I, I I want to know what their studios look like and and who was the first cartoonist that you remember um, getting a glimpse of their life and, and starting to piece that together? Oh, Matt Wagner, right? I don't know. You think it was Matt? Yeah. What was the what what? The first. Artists, remember, we went to the Panda Brothers Studio. That oh was yeah, like that the was the first really one cool. that we saw. Yeah, they lived in this. Um, Oh, this is really cool loft in downtown Portland. Like you'd walk in and up and it, the big giant room and then a long balcony and then you'd go up the stairs to the balcony and then there were, that's where all the little rooms were. But it had this big giant open space. People were skating downstairs. But then we also, um, Bob Shrek was one of the first when we met, moved back here. Him and, and Diana. Diana. And then but, that's but, how we met but, Matt. But, but that's not an artist studio. No. The Panders was their studio. Yeah, though. so the Panders... And Matt Wagner would have been the first time that we saw how somebody, what their workspace looked like, and how they, what what they surrounded themselves with for inspiration, or if they even did at all. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So some cartoons, I'm stunned how blank their their creative space is. I think Pope right now is drawing in a pretty limited space um, to get Adeline Boy done, and it sounds like he's just in a room, only a couple people know where he is. And he just <laughs> works. New York's got to be a totally different experience to try to work into than yeah. any yeah. place reasonable where humans should preside. Oh, <laughs> man. Well, you saw where we were living in Portland. Yeah. That was not conducive to a well, that productive was like a, a, lifestyle. That was, a, that was a finite period of time, though. We only knew we were going to be there for a year. It was very, it was very pretty, but I imagine distracting because you, like, yeah. you had downtown Portland outside of your window. Oh, uh, what uh, Pal's Books is four blocks away. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I was constantly walking around. Just, it's just not, not your studio or our studio. It's our whole house reflects everything. You walk in and go, whoa, you do comics. Yeah. <laughs> it's <But> like this, <laughs> everywhere. This, before that, we lived on the coast where you know we got our mail by boat. Mm -hmm. And um, wow, there were no distractions. Here's a nice happy balance where, where we can walk to the university. We can walk. To, I can ride my bike to the movies. But it's not so close the way downtown Portland was where like... There's too many distractions. Yeah. There's too, too much. Like if it's if, if if it's a choice between going to the comic book sh store or walking to go see a movie, I'm gonna go <laughs> and staying home and working. I'm gonna go to the comic shop or the movie theater. Right, especially about, when Jamie is always calling you up and asking you to see those movies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Portland always feels to me like it's a it's a comic convention that doesn't shut down. Yeah, it's like a little bit too much for me. Well, and Jamie, like she was saying, is a movie critic, so he's it's like there are always these. New movies that you get to see weeks before everybody else. Right, is this Jamie Rich? Yeah, yeah. Jamie Rich, and uh, and the music scene in Portland too. There's always something happening, so here it's a lot easier to be disciplined. And I think that's why I love the monthly schedule so much because it does require a certain discipline. And I like knowing that next month something's going to exist that didn't exist this month. And it's like it, it's like you got to get it done. It, has to get done. Mm -hmm. And then the challenge is how good can you make it in the time that you have? 
and uh, it, it's it keeps the blood flowing. I, I like it as opposed to sitting back and wondering what I'm going to do next, which is what I've gone through before. And I I can on the coast especially, it was real easy to just kind of wait until the bug bit. And now it's like I'm I'm on a ride and I've you know got to got to keep it going. Do you keep um, going with personal work while you're yeah. doing social research? So like on a smaller scale. My goal is happening. yeah. My goal is to have a madman special out every year. Okay. And if I feel like there's more that I want to put in that direction, I will. And in in that case, then we would get fill in artists for what I might be working on. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, and if if and there's uh, some other creator owned stuff that I want to do, that uh, when those wheels get spinning. Then yeah, I'm constantly having to look at my schedule and readjust it, but it it, it just feels I, I know what it felt like when there weren't any um, things happening, mm-hmm. and I like things happening better than things not happening. <laughs> so uh, yeah, we 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 there was one period where we were terrified. Um, I guess I feel more comfortable in the established aspect of my career yeah. now than before. Where, I, for most of it, probably is until as recent as three years ago, I didn't feel like I had job security. That I and now I don't worry about that so much anymore because I feel confident that if if I want to do something, I'll just do it, and then worry about. It coming out later and a lot of that has to do with image too because they've been really great with just like right. whatever you want we'll do it you yeah, know I, I love almost disconcerted some people because they're so casual about like when they back a creator they're like just send us the book you know yeah <laughs> yeah it's just nice knowing that you have somebody supportive like there and and having a relationship with Eric Stevenson or and, and actually it was Eric Larson that got me in the door he mm-hmm. was the one like hey do this with us this will be the circumstances under which you can work with us. And it just made it so comfortable that, you know, there you go. Now that's not to say I didn't have a good relationship with previous publishers, but but I, I, because I did, especially with dark horse. But what happened with dark horse was I had a fantastic relationship with my editor slash marketing director, Bob Shrek. Right. And then he moved on. Then he moved on. And then Jamie Rich, who was his assistant, who became my editor and has since, Edited all my creator own stuff since. Mm-hmm. He then moved on, as with him, <laughs> right. and so um, then all of a sudden I didn't have the. You know, I've always been friendly with Mike Richardson. I really love and respect him, but he he was never hands on with the creative process with mm-hmm. me, and so uh, by the time they got me with Diana Schutz, I I was frazzled and and a little scared and. Also very excited and interested in self-publishing, and that's when we started AAA Pop and started self-publishing the Atomics. Mm-hmm. So, but if if I'd had the relationship with Dark Horse that I have with Image now, it would have just been a matter of doing the work and being comfortable with them doing the the legwork to get it into shops. Right. I'm just kind of thinking about that particular point in time because um, earlier we we're talking. A bit about the kind of the existentialness um, 
And I kind of wonder how all these pieces fit into kind of putting out the golden plates and how that kind of came out. Because it's all, it's, I mean, being religious work, it's very different, but it's also visually very different. It's very muted. Um, it's, I guess, a lot cleaner. Well, we were looking at it tighter. next to the Silver Surfer earlier, and it's, it's, and obviously they're done at different times, but I mean, even the coloring is very, um, and a lot of it's probably that one work is, is you just, you know, the Silver Surfer discovers a mysterious city, and the other one is, is something that, that, you know, is, is, that you're probably not playing around with as much. Silver Surfer. Largely. <laughs> yeah, well, the, the act of doing it in the first place was all about um, having one of these exist, existential panics. And for I, I've had them since I was a little kid. Um, earliest one I remember was just, it was a summer night, little kid, didn't put to bed early where it's still light outside, and you're just not tired and you want to be out playing or whatever. I don't know, but for whatever reason, I wasn't sleeping. And then as it got dark, just the ceiling kind of fell away and I saw or imagined stars. And then I imagined the last star and the idea of, well, what's beyond the last star? And then I imagined like a cement wall and then asked myself, well, how thick is the cement wall? Should he even be talking about this? <laughs> No, seriously. And then, is, and then what's on the other it. side of the cement wall and how far does that go? And then Almost Kirby New God edition. Right? No, well, it, it's, you know, thinking where did time begin? Mm-hmm. And so if there was a Big Bang, where did the elements come from that formed the Big Bang? And what started them? And then what happened before that? Yeah, but we can't. Once I, I, I was trying to get it out of him, well, exactly what are you feeling? Tell me. It. I want to understand it. I swear I almost lost him. So we, I don't even like. It's a trigger. It's, I'll it's, never do that again. I, no, I seriously she, just going to drop was, him off she at was the hospital there with and me say, fix him. Because normally when this happens, when the panic sets in, the terror sets in, the fact that I'm in eternity right now, yeah. whether my part of eternity ends in a few years or continues on forever and ever, the all of a sudden I get a sense of what eternity really is and it almost I almost go into shock. Yeah. And when that happens I immediately I think my body protects itself and it stops the thoughts. But there's this after effect that's that's crippling. Hmm. And so most of the time when it happens it's very brief and it's like, okay, there was one of those eternity flashes. And in this case with so Laura would be like what do you think it is? I'm not sure, but it's awful. She says, well, maybe you should think it through. And so I tried Stupid. to, I tried to think it through and I nearly went insane. All of a sudden, every, all reality fell away from me. I felt like I was, I could see Laura, but I was like falling mm-hmm. through some kind of void. It was terrifying. Yes. So he gets it like once every I wonder if that's what he, insanity is because, yeah. um, once every five years it kind of comes on strong and he'll kind of warn me and he'll kind of say he doesn't want it because I always get really scared and so he'll kind of warn me a little bit and then I kind of know not to talk about it it's really it's but it's scary when it happens just something that triggers it most of the time no most of the time it just uh it's just you you know you're just kind of sitting around thinking about stuff uh it'll just kind of come come in and and then all of a sudden it's it's like you're pushed 
over a waterfall or something and there's there's no getting back up the waterfall and the reality is that you're either going to die or you're gonna wash off into an endless river I, I don't know I, I've never I for years and years I've tried to describe exactly what it feels like in this this one time when she said think it through um, it, it uh, I, yeah just the the after effects of that lasted for weeks if not months and yeah because we've we've been what married 33 years and it's happened like like every like five year thing he'll get a, like a bad one so this mm-hmm. last time we're like just let's you know talk it through why not and the most recent was right before Seattle this time around and um, but since that one I've known to do everything in my power to not think about it at all yeah and find every possible distraction I can and which doesn't help or it does help what what generally seems to help is just talking with people and um, but I'm also at the same time very conscious of boring them or or having them think I'm just a nut job and them never wanting to spend any time with me ever again because I know that this can't be fun to listen to but it, um, I don't have my dad anymore my dad was a psychologist oh. and um, he he didn't help you with this. No, he didn't. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's actually probably when you have family, you shouldn't be the ones. Helping. Yeah, and I think Dad more times than not just uh, just didn't. Yeah. Um, Mom, at that with that first time when when the ceiling just kind of fell away, she uh, I just started screaming and she came in and you know started comforting me and what and this is what's helped me the there's two things that have helped me the most since and with that time it was. Her saying, um, "What are you going to do tomorrow?" and just made yeah. me think about the stuff in the immediate future that I would enjoy doing. And what that has taught me over time is that, um, as terrified as I am of existing forever, um, I don't. I enjoy my life so much that I don't want to die. Um, so it's again, it's you're caught between the two. Do you enjoy living? Well, yes, I do. Then just continue living. Well, it's kind of like what you've set up for yourself here, too, though, because, I mean, here you are, you know, we have your family right in that or in the next room, your granddaughter wandering around, um, and so you've kind of, like, created this safe space and, like, brought in these things in your life to kind of be, like, this this focus of what's what's happening and yeah. kind of what's now. I also have to ask myself or confront myself with, do I... Am I attracted to pop culture because it's one giant pain pill, you know, and where I can um, indulge myself in, in comics and movies yeah. and music and not think about my real reality? So am I avoiding reality? I have to make sure that I'm not. And that's where family and friends come in, where I know that I'm interacting with uh, other living creatures. And, and, uh, and, th- and then part of this whole existential trip is wondering if anybody else is even real to begin with you know and one one obnoxious tweet that i said was uh i i i wrote you are this was my tweet you are the only thing that exists (laughs) (laughs) everything else is your fabrication you know that's not helping if somebody if 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 i read that from somebody you tweeted that yeah, I was just being a jerk. But again, I kind of wanted... No, that's not a jerky tweet. Trust I, me. Talk to me, Brandon. We'll tell you what jerky tweets are. That's... But I, I wanted... I, in some obnoxious way, I wanted to start a, a, a... I wanted to provoke a thought and start a conversation. Because that is a terror, terrifying thought to me that, that 
that everything is just, you know, when you talk about virtual reality and stuff, when you talk about the technology that's coming where people can, you know, encase themselves in a thing and, and then you couple that with the altered states uh, where, where you're not even feeling your senses anymore. Right. You can just, you could really damage yourself where you're in some, something that doesn't yeah, really exist. Your own brain. If you ever so did that, that altered states thing, you, you would go crazy. But with this virtual, <laughs> virtual technology that exists, am I in a virtual technology thing now? You I saw, know? I saw you a joke on that recently. Philip K. Dick. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man, I wrote a story for... Oh, wait, say what Anakin said. Um, our grandson ran in here when he was going through this really bad and said, um, numbers go on forever. What did he say? That's something he, learned, yeah, he learns in <laughs> oh, school. God. You know, numbers go on forever? That's and, and, and he, and nice. Yeah, nice. Just, <laughs> he runs in. Lays this, lays, lays this reality on me and then runs out of the room again. And like, we're, we're like, I'm, I'm, I'm like, here all week, folks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, it's okay. amazing. Thanks. It's perfect timing. The wisdom of a nine-year-old. Yeah. Like, oh my gosh. But there's also that that that, that enthusiasm of the nine-year-old too. Right? I, yeah. I, I, it's, it's totally unrelated and stupid. I just had it on my tip of my brain. And, and when you're talking about altered states, I saw something. It was just like a, something on Twitter that someone said where... Somebody was like, I went into the altered states. I went into a sensory deprivation tank for a week. and Or two men went in. One of them touched every living thing in the universe and became one with everything. And the other guy had sex with the rabbit from Space Jam. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was fantastic. Oh, man. So these are the options that you're dealing with here. Yeah. But I, I don't, you know, we don't have to talk about this stuff. It just kind of came up, but... One good thing that comes out of this is I'm constantly assessing my life, and or as we were taught growing up, count your blessings. There's even this song we were taught when we were kids called, the song's called Count Your Blessings, name them one by one, and so I'm constantly looking at, you know, how good I have it, mm-hmm. and so to whine about the the burden of existence is just pathetic, and so I, I snap myself out of this as quickly as I can. It's real, and I can't avoid it. But I, do, I am able to to look around and go, I love my life, and if if I can have it this good always, then that's the kind of forever I could deal with. And so then maybe mortality is is really at play here because eventually this is going to end. We're all going to pass on, and losing my dad and and then losing my mom just a few weeks ago, you know, that has an obvious effect. And so then you get into this whole thing, well, like, was that it? Will I never see them again? Or, or do you believe in spiritual things? Are they, is their essence their... Isn't that part of, like, the, one of the tenets of Mormonism? It's like... Well, the, the main, the, 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 the thing that I find attractive about Mormonism, what, is it called Mormonism? I don't know. <laughs> but is that, uh, this whole families are forever thing. Yeah. That, um, that, that that God is actually our Heavenly Father and that we have a Heavenly Mother and that they went through what we're going through now and that this is a cycle that just continues infinitely. So then you would then say that, and this is where a lot of hardcore Christians are offended by Mormonism, the idea that God would have ever been like us, you know, as lowly as us. Um, But so that our Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother were also, also have a Heavenly Father and a Heavenly Mother and so we're just kind of thrust down into this existence to fend for ourselves and, and gain strength from our experiences. 
and then over eternities um, develop and grow to where we can become, you know, creators like them. So that that at, at its heart, that's that's. that's I still think when we pass too, we're going to still have our own personalities. We're going to still think like we think. We're not going to be a different. We're we're going to still be ourselves. Which you would hope, but that this is where reincarnation, I think, is a is a hor- horrific. Yeah, the terrifying idea of just losing yourself. Losing yeah. Your, yeah. What's the point of re- being reborn as something else if you don't remember who you were before? What right. was the point of being who you became? And so I would hope that if there is some kind of existence after this one that we would, even if temporarily before we get put down into the right, you know, get back on the right again, right. that we're able to, you know, reevaluate um, our experiences. Well, there definitely is. And there was before, too. You see every child, they have their own little personality already. I mean, there, it's not like you come out a certain way. Every baby that's born has a little personality that's all there is. There own. is that. Like that and, and the idea that we existed before, that there's a pre-existence, that, that's, that's a Mormon um, tenet. And, and there again, that's where, you know, if you're taught this when you're a little kid, then you go, well, how long was I a pre-existent spirit? Yeah. You know, how long did that last? I don't see why the bugs, I mean, well, with your whole thing, I it, can see why it does. It but. melts my brain. Yeah, right? I know. <laughs> so you were raised... Mormon? I was raised Mormon, You were, too. okay. Yeah, to, for me, till I was, again, 11. And then yeah. me and Dad, it was the courtship of Eddie's father after that. It was just a couple of single dudes, 11-year-old <laughs> and, a, and a single dad. Um, walking down the street looking for my next mommy. Yeah. I can but, tell you about getting, that. Getting into trouble. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, my dad was awesome. He, the, the best thing I got from Dad was his desire to try everything. Yeah. He, he built two biplanes in their basement. Like o- open pit uh, biplanes. So, I mean, he was a pilot. He did gliders, parachuting, scuba diving. He, he did everything. Yeah. He lost his left hand, and nobody knows exactly how. I mean, obviously, somebody did. Well, he, he'd wow. tell everybody a different story. Nice. So, yeah. so, at his, so, at his memorial, people lined up and were saying, he told me that he... It got bit off by, by a shark. Yeah, or, or shark and alligator. Chopped off yeah. by a propeller, blown he, up by a. He, never would, he didn't throw the hand grenade back yeah. in time. He never told the same story, so he never. Nobody ever really knew how he lost his. Family. Which I love. I I think I have a pretty good idea of what really happened. Well, I kind of do because I tucked here. But I mom. I like <laughs> I I prefer not to know exactly what yeah. happened. There's and mom doesn't know. She didn't know exactly. That hand is a Mister X, huh? There you go. Yeah, but he always he always tried everything, and thankfully, one of the things he wanted to try was art. And so there was a drafting table growing up. There were Andrew Loomis how to draw books, and there were always art supplies around. And then, um, uh, while mom would constantly be trying to throw away our old comics, dad was always you know there to get us new ones. Well, it's so neat because like for you, I mean, you've realized that. Right, like you're yeah. an artist, you're using your hands, you're doing art constantly. So it's it's a really neat like kind of continuation of like what your father really wanted to do, and you being able to kind of like live that. Yeah, and I I, I like trying new things and going to new places and meeting new people. Um, he, he you don't was, like going, you like for, being there. Yeah, <laughs> no, that's very true. That's very true. I hate airports more than anything, but. But knowing where we'll end up, they're not natural. <laughs> no, no. Let's get in that tube and shoot across the sky. No, I feel like Louis C.K. was saying, "It's amazing. Uh, <laughs> sit in a seat, and then you're you somewhere you, else. An hour later, or whatever, you're in a whole other place. You, know? <laughs> you big whiny baby. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
always surreal to me, like, going, getting on a plane, like, oh, look, I'm in New York now. How did this happen? Exactly. It's just like the world turned, and here I am. Yeah. It's like I just stepped into something and popped out. Yeah, I... Which I you get full-time, like, in Dune. You just go walk into your room full-time, and then you're in a whole other place instead of getting on an airplane. Yeah. As opposed to... Well, I, my, I have a journal of my great-great-grandfather who crossed the plains... Like, you knew Joseph Smith and crossed the plains with Brigham Young. Oh, wow. Got shot in the chest with an arrow. Hit and button saved his yeah, life. Yeah, hit, hit a button, and so it, it didn't kill him. And um, Boy, you're talking weeks and weeks just to get a few hundred miles. And I would have been back. I would have been still in, like, Sweden or England. I would have never gotten on the boat to come <laughs> That's right. I'm like, oh, wait. We, we don't have that pioneer spirit. <laughs> Um, I've read a little bit about those journeys, and it just sounds like, especially because Utah is not the most hospitable. Oh, place. well, the, the 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 you get there, you, you imagine them coming over the Rockies and seeing this big, beautiful lake, and it's salty. <laughs> you know, oh, and the, let's let's build a city here. You know, so it, it's, no one else will want to be here, so it's our space. That's right. Largely, that's remained true. <laughs> I mean, think about the, you know, they're talking about the Mars expeditions now where they would just send people that would spend the rest of their entire lives there. No and, coming back. And that's that's kind of what, you know, people that came to the New World or whatever were asking yes. themselves. There's an amazing yeah. Chris Ware comic. You probably won't agree it's amazing. Um, I, I'm growing, Chris Ware's growing on me. I don't think I had the right background to empathize with a lot of the stuff he does, but he's a very interesting human being, certainly. It's a group of people sent to Mars and they're kind of they're living there for the rest of life and so they have ways to grow plants and stuff and just like how that disintegrates and how it's just like I mean it's curse war so there's a certain amount of nihilism I think there was also a Cliff Chang book recently that, that had a very similar story <laughs> this is an Acme novelty story right? yeah yeah yeah. the Rocket like Sam stuff and no it's more recent it's like 22 or 23 it's got like a I can't remember the color of the cover it's like the first half is about um Think Chalky White's dad, and the second half is a story that Chalky White's dad wrote. Or is not it that ridiculously drawn one that's that's kind of depressing? <laughs> <laughs> Shut up! <laughs> Shut up! <laughs> um, yeah. So it's, I don't know. He, he's a yeah, I, he's another artist I just think is just amazing, and I don't I don't get how his mind works that he would do some of the tedious stuff in, in in there, but it pays off. And I'm surprised that you wouldn't immediately appreciate it because there's a there's a, I find some similarities actually in, in the I, I think there is. I think that um, I think I'm kind of approaching some things that he does from different areas at this point. Yeah, a lot of it. You know how it is when you're if it's like if if your favorite album or your favorite movie was was given to you by somebody. Who you respected, and when it was like this is horrible, then you might approach it differently. Right. And like sometimes um, the environment says a lot, and and I really grew up in an environment that a lot of the a lot of the comics that were being held in the highest esteem, you know, my older brother and my friends were kind of snubbing their noses at. So it's taken yeah. me some time to kind of uh, and then changed around their own opinions, and I'm still stuck in 1983. You know. I get that too. I'm like that in a lot of ways. I I completely understand that. And uh, you almost have to make your own path to find your way back to appreciate certain things. And I've, and I've been dealing with coming around to where his work through him as a person because his interviews are always so fascinating and him, he just seems like a really interesting, smart person. Yeah. 
And so I'm almost like I've, connecting I've, more with him than his than his work. He and my brother Lee, I think, would be best pals if they were ever to spend any time together, just based on how I know my brother and what I've read about. Level of introspection. Yeah. I've only met Chris Ware once. He did a really cool Madman piece for me, but um, yeah, he's really fascinating. Was that, that ever published? Right? Yeah. Yeah. Was that Madman thing you did ever published? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, yeah in, it's, it's, it's in, in here. It's a big, uh, you know how you do those fake ads, mm-hmm. like the old comics, and so it's just something like that. Around Madman. Yeah, yeah, it's like a Madman costume, like a kid in a oh, nice. mask with the band around it. And... It's pretty great. Um, I think I'm going to bring this to a close. We've been yakking for quite a while. I'm time. really terrified that this has turned into a, a depressing therapy session. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you about my day job after. Um, no, actually, I've really, I've really appreciated this. I mean, one of the things like I was thinking about before is the previous talk we had was really fun, um, kind of bantering back and forth. You know, three cartoonists talking about like getting in the dirt and drawing, and this is kind of the opposite, where it's like I really want to have like a conversation, okay. and I really appreciate that, like getting to know the artist and the creator. Um, and for me, I think. Um, kind of that's kind of the point of of what I do with the Ink Studs and also kind of the point of what we're doing right now with the tour is to really um, talk to these different artists so we're going to be talking to a lot of different folks and they're all coming from different backgrounds and different perspectives and kind of really understanding like comics today is not um, the same as it was even 10 years ago it's such so many different types of characters so many different types of people and so many different types of interests and backgrounds and like um, one of the things to think about is like, um, you don't just create to, as a job. Like you, you said, it's not a job. Um, it's it's your art, and so you do this for a reason. You're creating for a reason, and I enjoy it. You enjoy it, but you're also doing it for a specific reason. Um, and and I think this kind of reflects in that. And this is like why why am I why do I make art? Well, this is it. I need. To answer these questions, I need to release this. This this is like such a primal part of it. Say, watching Brandon draw and just seeing how when he's approaching something and just kind of working out these problems in the work and also working out personal issues and kind of you know it may not be obvious say in a profit comic, but there's stuff happening in there. There's there's personal stuff, and I think Simon may be able to chime in too with his own personal stuff, especially with the Anatomic Heart, where. Um, you're doing stuff in like a sci-fi thing, um, but you're still putting your work, you know, it's your art through that. It's your yeah. story through that. Yeah, you're showing a bit of yourself through whatever you're doing, as well as, you know, it's therapeutic and it's super right. fun. And as well as just kind of playing too. Yeah, yeah, it, it covers a lot of different bases. Please not to me.